and welcome to another welcome to another recording of Lily High on Life. Thank you for being with us. And today's guest is somebody very very special that I've actually known most of my life. We have Julie Oshlak Harari Meadows as our special guest, and she's a really really dear, dear relative that um, that I first met when I came to Australia at the age of four, and she and her family were from the same town in uh, Poland from Szelachow. Julie, welcome to Lily High on Life. Hello, Lily High on Life. You haven't changed a great deal in your attitude to life. You were a forthright and happy child when I met you, coming out of Russia and whatever. But uh, none of that seemed to um, have any effect on your desire to have fun and friends and I haven't forgotten how you looked when you were that little girl. Well thank you and I was just looking at a gorgeous photo of you of your graduation and I remember you absolutely in these days and you're still very much recognisable and you really are very much a part of my family history even though I really haven't seen you for ages and we we didn't see each other that often but we'll talk about Auntie Edger and Uncle Jakob later on and how they were a a little hub of Zhelikov here in Melbourne, Mm. Australia. Julie, would it tell me a little bit about what you're doing now because you've been doing some really wonderful, important things. Well, um, I, I have to do what old people do. They do what little kids do. They say, a child says, I'm two and a half, three and a half, four and a half. I'm 85 and three quarters. So you can imagine what I'm doing now is not, yes, a, not quite what I was doing till very recently, especially with the uh, COVID uh, um, pandemic. Uh, They locked us up, and especially people of my age, they warned you, although my health is reasonable. So what am I doing now? Well, I finished my last special anthology of stories for Courage to Care in 1919, just before, March 1919, just before everything closed up, thank goodness, and that was Courage to Care, second volume. It was um, Courage to Care is the name of the the. B'nai B'rith chapter, although it's separate, but it's part of B'nai B'rith, and Courage to Care are the books that I um, put together. Now, I started collecting family, not family, sorry, the the autobiographical stories of people who live in Melbourne, wherever they come from. And since you come from from Russia, I must tell you, when I've done... Um, how many years? About 16 years, and I constantly wanted to get to the Russian community because we know what happened to the Poles in Western Europe. We know what happened uh, somewhat, what happened in Belarus or in um, the places that had borders with Poland, but we knew very little about what happened to the Russian Jews as such rather than the Russian 
uh, Russian people all together with the Germans. And, and it was pretty an horrible and, and, and enormous and amazing. And I just wanted that this community who came so much later because that's when they could get out, that we would know what they went through. And it's such an important thing to collect people's histories, people's stories, and know firsthand what happened. And that's one of the, just one of the wonderful things that you've done. But just to go back a bit, for Courage to Care for those people that don't know about it is a wonderful initiative that was started to fight anti-Semitism and to bring stories of the Holocaust into modern life for non-Jewish children in a way that in not just taught them something, but also advanced their own lives and gave them tools to make sure that it really doesn't happen again. Tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this wonderful organisation. Well, where do I start? I I was a member, I and my husband, Fred Meadows. Uh, when you say I'm Julie Oshlak Harari Meadows, it proves I'm, I'm long, I've lived a long life. We'll talk Fred about that my, later. Yes, please. My, my second and very much loved husband, yes, and um, he was a member of B'nai B'rith. And B'nai B'rith not only does what you said, but it does it in the context of telling stories of non-Jews who saved Jews in the most difficult of situations where they themselves were in danger of being killed or put into concentration camps. In places like Poland, you were shot and sometimes so was your family. So when we judge people that they didn't save Jews, a lot of people did save Jews, not as many as we would hope by any means, and they wouldn't tell because... Um, it was dangerous to be known that you'd saved Jews. And there are stories and stories about that. So how did I get into B'nai B'rith? Firstly, I'd be a member. And just to, uh, just to emphasise that just a little bit more, there were, as you say, not nearly enough people that helped the Jews, but it's such a blessing and a wonderful thing to celebrate those that did. Well, put, we put our, if we put ourselves in their shoes, would we have put ourselves and our families in right. danger? And that's and what courage you, to care. Then you ask, yes. So I, I decided after a, quite a, a, maybe after five, six, seven years and there was no end to people who wanted. I never pursued people. It was an open program run by, which I started for McCall with 10 people. Um, we put an ad in the Jewish News, 10 people turned up, a perfect number, and I was still teaching at the time. What did the ad say? It said uh, that um, McCall, something like this, I've got the ad somewhere, McCall Jewish Community Library is opening um, a program for people who have written or want to write their stories uh, for their children and grandchildren, help will be given. That's it. And 10 turned up, uh, 11 or 12. One dropped straight away because she thought that was a promise that we would get something published and she'd be a famous writer after that. And I explained that... Let's start and see where... <laughs> no, I never thought it was going to be like that at all. Uh, the rest stayed on. 
and uh, after 10 weeks they'd barely started and I was learning how not to be a teacher but a facilitator to let them tell it in their own way and just help them with the grammar, the spelling and perhaps by asking the next question. And after 10 weeks, the money that we'd got from the... Um, uh, it was the uh, Multicultural Commission had pretty well run out. Um, it's not, it wasn't all that much, but it, it paid me a small fee and a fee to the library. Tell me a little bit about some of those, that the people that came to that very first oh, meeting. Oh, some wonderful people. I think one that a lot of people will remember is Kitja Altman. She's an amazing woman. She died quite recently, maybe two or three years ago. Kitja was a heroine. She had been in the camps. She'd come from a, an educated family of Polish. I don't dare say the name of some of those Polish towns. I think it's Shedlitz, but I won't promise that that's Zelikov, true. where we're from, is uh, enough. <laughs> it's, it's also a very tiny place. Um, Lily, I've been there, and I tell you, it's, uh, there's nothing there much. <laughs> the Jews moved out and no one wanted to go there. It's really a hamlet compared to some of these large, beautiful cities. But anyhow, so there was her and there was the lovely Maya Harari who, who wrote about Egypt and had a wonderful sense of humour. Um, there was Lily as... Oh, dear. <laughs> That's OK. Just a little Lily, bit about her story. Lily had a marvellous story of, of the family going from Vienna to... Uh, to um, Shanghai and how the family survived and how they came to Australia and how she just moved into a place distant from Jewish community and found the language and friendship. She just got on with people beautifully. Most beautiful person. Um, you'd be surprised what pops up. And so I made an arrangement with McCaw that that they would not charge unless people turned up and paid weekly. And anyone who whispered that it was too hard, they'd come for, without patent. The, because it was an important thing, I could see that if this was going to work, and I didn't expect this to be more than a 10-week project, um, we wanted the stories as much as they wanted to tell them, to have a, um, an amazing archive one day because we in Australia are a bit different than America or almost anywhere else. Those who are telling the stories are very close to being, many of them are, and many of the other stories that come from pre-war, these were most, mostly Holocaust survivors who turned up. They were the ones who wanted to tell. But those who came from pre-war and then the consequent people were the first comers. We were the the beginnings of the Jewish community in Melbourne. It's not we went back to 18 or 17. How old, How old was I? Um, I was in my married married twice by then. I was teaching at a TAFE college. I was teaching adult migrants and something called compensatory education. I was a, a teacher of English and, and um, English as a second language, uh, academic, English for academic purposes, working with immigrants. Um, I was, was in impetus? my 50s. My what impetus, well, one of my good friends said that uh, he never knew anyone who was 
interested in other people's histories, <laughs> where they came from and, um, and uh, why and how. And uh, so I suppose it's intrinsic. I've always had a... When I was teaching these adult migrants with the keenest of students, it was amazing what I got out of them. I actually got them to write, but not as part of my classes. If they wanted to, and you'd be amazed what I got from them. Amazing. Um, when we meet people, I guess we say the nice things, we put on a social face, we, uh, we give our best selves or the selves we want to show. When people start writing about their lives, you, you come across the person and when a person is in a situation of um, of openness, you you can't like them or dislike them. There's some intimacy that is amazing that you establish. And I don't want to be everybody's best friend or or a social worker, but just to hear the stories behind the lives is, is for me something I have a talent for it let's put it that way you absolutely do did you what do you have a tally of how many to date you've helped oh, hundreds and hundreds because the people wrote them we at first we had no intention of doing books absolutely none we were going to write and then um Ros Collins who was a, a very good um, head of the McCall Library and had to fight like mad to keep it open because they were always running short. They were, had very little funding indeed. People couldn't imagine why we needed a Jewish library at the time. <laughs> and I give her full credit that she'd lie awake and not sleep. She was so de determined to make it work for the community. And um, when... When the money ran out, then I said, uh, look, I have to earn something, but, you know, if three come, three will come. If, if the 10 come or 12 come, that will be something else again, uh, a little, because I was working then part-time at my work and, and I had to bring in some income. Mm. I'd have loved to do it for nothing, you know, not, not that I... <laughs> <laughs> made a living out of this ever. That's not the story anyhow. Um, so I had to find the money after a while because suddenly I had more than one class. I, I had two classes. Wow. People heard from other people that it was working and that they were writing and, it, and the way with that they were writing is this is what I, I ought to I ought to uh, write about and, and encourage others to do. I walked into the first lesson. We're not going to go very far. <laughs> and, and I had prepared myself as a teacher does. I went to my bookcase and I took out the books where it, a book started with, in 1937, my grandfather, so that was historic, or someone wrote, my mother was a wonderful woman, and that was starting with the family. And then it would say, in the mountains of of um, of uh, the mountains, I'm trying to think of a place where Jews live, which we don't know so well. Uh, my parents actually lived in a very small Jewish village. This is placing it. And I had four ways you can start a story. And then I brought it in and I gave them the first page of each one, passed it out, pass it round, pass it round, exactly as I did with my 
students that I was teaching language to. And these poor women who'd been through the war, some had had high school, many hadn't at all. Some were uh, um, quite literate and some struggled. Mostly people were literate and able. Uh, and uh, they looked at me blankly and I thought, my God, I've lost them and I haven't even started. <laughs> this is not a lesson. <laughs> And I said to them, look, I'm taking the papers up. You can start like this or like this or like this or like this. And I said, and there's another way to start. And I found out some of them had written 10 pages or five chapters and put them in a drawer or didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> so <laughs> took the papers back and I said, you can do plays, you can do grandparents, you can blah, blah, start. I said, and if you don't know how to, just sit down and start writing on a piece of paper anything that comes into your mind, like bubbles, make bubbles, and then decide you're going to do it one way or the other. It doesn't matter these days. We're so lucky because a computer, and only a few of them use computer, but I had a computer. Yeah. We can, we can play around. We can move things. So it was and just encouraging them. the memories. That's right. And encouraging them to put the memories and down. And I suggested they did it chronologically. You've got to be a very good writer to start playing around with chronology. Chronology helps you and explain that and off they went and they weren't allowed to talk to each other. There was tea and coffee and biscuits. If they wanted a break and it was two hours and they wanted to talk to each other, they had to go out in the corridor. So and they were on their honour because I was in the other room after a while. I had corrected and I had um, if I wanted them to see me about something, I'd write see me and they'd come in in their own time to the next So room. you were editing while they were writing? Editing is not the word, leading uh, and encouraging. Yes, editing the grammar. I said to them, the one thing you mustn't worry about is the grammar because that makes them very, very, very embarrassed that they, they haven't got the grammar exactly right and the right word. When, when a, a woman says... <laughs> A girl of 14 is in a work camp and she's wandering uh, from Vilna down towards, towards in the end, Germany and she meets her little brother who disappeared off the train. And he's, he's a servant to a German officer further down and, and, and she can't believe he's alive and she wants to take him and the German officer says, look, he's safer with me. I'm fond of the boy. If I survive, he'll survive. But if he goes with you, he said, I don't want to tell you what you might encounter. And she said, I was sad. <laughs> and I said, how sad. So you're not saying it for them, but you're very sad. How sad. And I know the woman, she said, that was the worst moment of my whole life. To this day, it's the worst moment to look back at this eight-year-old and leave him forever. I put it down for her. So that's the sort of thing you did. But you never tried to put your words into so what they were doing. Julie, the stories are just heartbreaking, heartwarming, heart, everything heart, 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 because they came from the heart. What... Apart from the stories, what did you find that writing them did for these people? I think, well, one woman said to me, I'm trying to think exactly who said this. Uh, she said, I think, not good to Goldberg, perhaps. 
she said, yes, it was her. She said, the hurt's still there, but there's, there's a great load off my chest that's been there all along. And once that happened, I knew it. Okay. Um, so it was a relief. Mm. Did all the stories, when I say publish, um, I mean different things. Were all the stories printed and available to be read? And when did the publishing come in? Well, that was, again, not our... We, as I said, we thought a 10-week course. They take it up to the girls upstairs in <laughs> Beth Weissman where there are a number of offices where the, the lovely young women running it and older women. When they had a bit of spare time, they were going to type it up for them because two people could use a computer in that group, nobody else, and me. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it became something way beyond that. Uh, I did a lot of typing. It never went to the girls upstairs because it grew and grew. And um, then one person had heard that you could digitally now put together a book. Uh, I mean, it could, you didn't put it on a printing press, you could self publish. That was beyond our. our um, we had no money, we'd run out of money. <laughs> Uh, they'd have to do that themselves. I could raise funds. I went around raising funds from there on. I can't tell you how hard that was and how much sleep I lost on that. Um, and I often touched people I knew well who I should, as a friend, not have, and, and, and family. But um, we had to have a, a certain amount of money. Um, and finally, because of a friendship with the wonderful... Should I tell? A friend of mine in Sydney was a, a niece of um, Lottie and Victor Smorgan, mm. and she'd come down to Melbourne and to the Beth Weissman. She was very much involved with the Jewish community, an important a VIP of Sydney, and and it was actually um, it was actually. Um, uh, Ros Collins, who chased her with our first book. <laughs> it was in, in an A4. <laughs> um, it was in an A4 sh a, a size and, and rather nicely put together, but impossible to sell if we even put did a number of copies because mm -hmm. who, who would take an A4? But anyhow, she chased her and my friend took it and said, look what we're doing, look what we're doing. And when she got back to Sydney, she said to me, I'm so impressed, you know, it's, it's coming to something. And then when I couldn't, I had to raise money and I knew she was a Smorganese. I thought if I ring the Smorgans, everybody rings the Smorgans, they're so generous. I rang her and said, could you do something for me? I said, we really need to get, get people are coming. We've got two but the classes The truth is now. that, you know, Fundraising and getting money is um, a world onto its own and there's so much stupidity about it. Those that have have been blessed with the opportunity to get things done and you can look at it as being embarrassed but you're not asking money for yourself. Well, you're asking money for the good of so much more and you're giving them the opportunity yes, but to they, participate. Okay, I don't believe I have a right to spend other people's money and they have no obligation unless they want it. I'm Absolutely. old enough to know that 
that that your attitude is the correct one, but it's not but it's one you can somebody... put on. Yeah, well, if people don't feel that way, that's you're, absolutely you're right. putting your hand in their pockets. People who give, give and give and give, and yes, and others do sometimes. So anyhow, she asked me to write my request and what I was t- doing. And she got in touch with the family and it was Victor Smorgan who said I'd like myself and my wife's name to be called the Victor and Lottie Smorgan program and and I will give $10,000 a year. And then later I had to carefully ask for double that because we were only... We were only paying. I was I was actually earning over ten years there, and I'd stopped working halfway through. I was earning um, forty four hundred and twenty dollars a month. But it was such but an important I was, program. I would have done it if I could. And everyone working there, we had editors. We were working. I I I. I brought other editors in. I taught some people to be editors who were very good at, at, obviously could be good at it. And how amazing and wonderful what's come out of it and what is still coming out of the program, still coming out of it now. Well, I I was there 10 years and uh, sometimes it felt like, to be honest, dragging within an organisation, dragging a a wagon, not... (laughs) Along with me, and and I found it very difficult How in some ways. How did you get ways. through those times when you the difficult times? How um, did you? I guess I, I I'm not an obsessive person in any way, so I look back and I'm amazed how obsessive I was about. The, the stories, and I so much wanted the Russians. You can't imagine, because it was so hard. Firstly, I didn't know how to reach them, and secondly, I didn't know how to fund them. I could get, and I found I could get some money actually from Port Phillip because they had a lot of Russian people, and they gave us some money. And I couldn't get anything from the Russians. The project became bigger than you, and I needed the Russians to write in Russian. They weren't going to write in English, and I needed someone to translate. And no one was going to translate for nothing, not even the grandchildren. Of course. <laughs> so of course. I, I got a couple of people who, who wrote beautifully uh, and could write English, even with broken English, but they, they knew the language. They hadn't used it. And I chose two people, but I had to keep funding it at, at triple the price of anybody and it's else. such a tribute to you that you did keep going and that you did keep it going. The other side to Courage to Care, which is just as important, is that the program that they take into schools, non-Jewish schools, mm-hmm. not just Jewish schools, is that they encourage kids today to stand up yeah. through these stories uh, well, and yes. to stand up for bullying, that's to stand right. up for what they believe in. And that's not just the past, but it's facilitating a better future. And and that's their program, which they've had for a long time, and it works very well with introducing our stories. But in the middle, when I left McCall, thinking I'd stopped, I had already arranged with McCall's um, compliance to work for 
uh, Monash University for the Yiddish program because they were doing a program on Yiddish and I had just reached the point where I wanted to do I had Russia and Carlton before I can stop and then I had to do um, stories of people who saved Jews. They were the three projects I wanted to do before I died, if I had the time. <laughs> and uh, I had no reason to think I would die, but I know that time waits for no person. So I did go then to Monash University with, with the marvellous Professor Andrew Marcus and his team, and we got on like a house on fire. And the Carlton stories were my sheer delight because I'd lived in North Carlton uh, for the first 12 years of my life, and it was um, it was like sticky beaking into people that <laughs> that had been my neighbours and friends and school friends and Habonim friends. And anyhow, uh, that was two books of delight. I didn't ever know when I started. I started with Carlton and it was, we, we called it uh, a shtetl in Eckfeld. I knew that straight away, a, a, a village at the end of the world. That's what people called it. Uh, but then I realised that I hadn't added any of the people who came post-war, which tripled the, more than tripled the, the community. Stories. So... We had to start again for a second book called, and we took a long time to find a proper, uh, proper title. And I tried three or four on Andrew Marcus, and finally I said, my favourite is coming from the Partisan song von Himmlen. Not in the in the Partisan song, it says, when blue skies replace leaden days. So, Van Himmelen Blyder, um, Bloyer Tag. So we put, that's what we used. When, when grey skies, um, uh, blue skies replace grey days. We used it from the partisan song. And that satisfied both of us. And you know, a lot of what you've just said is really what Lily High on Life is all about. You don't know when you meet someone in the street or you walk past someone or someone gives you your lunch or dinner in a restaurant. You have no idea who or what they are or what they've come from or what their situation has been either in their history or even an hour before you met them. And so what we try to encourage is for people to smile more because that makes people feel better, to be kind to everybody because the kindness, you never know how much that is needed, how unhappy people are because most people put on a smile and you have no idea, and to come from love. And so telling these stories from all these people and realising and having an insight into what they're dealing with and what they've come from helps to spread the kindness and the love. And the understanding, that's what comes from it as well. Well, the, the other thing is some of those stories were just too utterly heartbreaking when a mother is running from a farm in Poland and uh, Germans stop to ask for a drink and they're hidden there in the mud. Yeah. And the mother um, takes a child out of the back window and runs to the forest 
and she runs and runs and she's sure they're after her and she finally says to the child and takes a razor blade out of her out of her shoe on the, hidden somewhere in a belt of shoe and says we can be together forever but it will hurt a little and then she changes her mind that's enough to give you nightmares for ages forever. because the voices she heard were just young picnickers in the in the forest things like that and you imagine what it's like to come into adulthood that the child never forgets even when she's an older woman and she's a very sad older woman because so much that happened was so much and as you get older a lot of the stuff from when you were younger comes back and also for me because I was the listener and the conveyor I kept my emotions I could cry with people when we were correcting and there were tears it's easy enough to cry with them but um, I kept myself pretty much immune but then I would go to a kindergarten performance of one of my grandchildren and look at it a little bunch of Jewish kids sitting cross-legged in front of us performing and I'd break my heart entirely knowing they would have all died in that in that situation. And yes. I can't even imagine what it took to stay unemotional during those stories because I'm tearing up as you're giving me tidbits. <laughs> well, I wasn't out. unemotional. I wept with them and that helped. And I, I didn't try not to. Um, and you would have too. Anyone would have if people are living through. It was... Look, people wrote not because they wanted to be... They wanted to be heard, but they they were also afraid to write. They knew the memories would haunt them and come back to them, and some they'd suppressed would, would simply uh, come up again. And those who came, I never asked anyone to write. They came to me. I think the only person I asked to, to write for me were actually two people, one was Maya Harari, who was my brother-in-law and a funny man and told wonderful stories day and night. And I said, you're going to come to my classes. And that man, the stories, when he was old and doing nothing else, he'd read his own book from page one to the end and go back to page one. It gave him a raison d'etre in his older years. Um, he was funny. He wanted to tell stories of being taken, a gentleman. He was a lovely Jewish oriental gentleman and he got taken down so badly at first and he couldn't name the people. He wanted to name the people and I said, you can't, we'll, we'll get sued. So I said, you've got to say, call them Mr Levy or Mr Cohen. I will call him Mr Levy or Mr Cohen whenever I tell you one of these stories. So that's what he did. It was right Amazing. in his way of humour. And the other person was the wonderful Myra Fisher who writes letters to the age every day and gets most of them, um, most of them um, printed. Her daughter... Uh, was a fellow teacher with me and she kept talking about her crazy wonderful mother who sent letters to the age and had an opinion about everything and that she'd been through in England she'd been through the blitz and had gone to the country and I said no one's given me a story like that I, I could have her I could have her um coming I would love her to come well that wasn't holocaust so I felt 
uh, that I could ask. And then she wrote in the beginning of the book, uh, Julie, I was this little girl from the East End who was a hairdresser, and here I was writing a book. She wrote a wonderful book, by the way. Uh, Sounds she, great. <laughs> but Julie, mm. you also, I don't even know if you realise, have a really unique situation and voice because you were uh, three, two, three years old when you came to Australia and you grew up in Australia, but you grew up in that post-Holocaust era. I remember your parents well. I remember my aunt and uncle, um, Edger and Jakob Oshlak, were kind of the hub for all. Everybody would come on the weekends mm-hmm. and, and gather there and everything. And you grew up and became very Australianized with the way you spoke, with the way you thought, but you were still part of that old country with all the sensibilities that were required to get through with your parents and your cousins and your extended family. Talk to me a little bit about what it was like for you as you were growing up forging an Australian life, but still very much part of the shtetl community Mm. and way of thinking. I I don't think you realise that I grew up actually during the Holocaust knowing nothing at all about it. My parents get... My mother had a a baby, my brother Eddie, in 1939, August 39. The war started in September the 1st and she lost... She lost... uh, knowledge of where her parents were and she just crashed she couldn't look after the child for a month uh, she was she 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 broke down she couldn't find them they sent money with the red cross it came back i knew there was a lot of bad things happening and uh, my cousins who lived across the road the oshlak cousin Sholem oshlak and his kids their son joe became an airman when he um and went to England and he came back in his uniform and I remember aged five seeing this very handsome young man walking towards me. We lived opposite each other and I realised it was Joe and the most dealings I had with this young man was uh, he'd pat me on the head or lift me up or, or say something silly and this time I ran into his arms. I was so excited and he lifted me up and he whirled me round and and gave me a little sort of, not a kiss, a sort of a nuzzle, you know, on the head and I was so proud and he... By the end of the war, he he was dead, and his brother Charlie, who'd been taken in at eighteen, as a, as all the young men were, died of an appendix attack. But he had didn't even see um, he didn't even see uh, any action. So two boys from one family died on this side. So I wasn't immune from knowing tragedy, and also the newspapers were covered with black who died. So I didn't understand the child in two worlds. How do you do? I went to the Yiddish school, and I was a Yiddish kid. And in North Carlton, Jews would walk from one side of the road to the uh, across the road to each other and yell out in Yiddish. And I went to the Yiddish school, which I I shabnachas from, as a lot of kids didn't. I'm a literary person, and that gave me a second literary 
door to walk through. And I had some amazing teachers, especially in later years. I had a man called Beroz, and he'd been a very famous uh, journalist, a Yiddish one in Warsaw. I had Gilligich. I had Weislitz, a wonderful actor. And I just, and I loved the songs. I didn't get much story. Dad didn't tell stories till later. They were pretty traumatised. I did not, and I thought the Holocaust happened to other people. I said, where are my grandparents? They said, um, they died. And I accepted it. My brother Eddie didn't. He listened to all the stories and was, he was quite traumatised himself because he listened behind closed doors and I was a good girl. And it didn't catch up with me till later. Till when? When? I was going to school with a number of girls at Macrob who'd gone through the Holocaust. Most of my friends were newcomers. But, um, oh, this one was hidden by very nice Polish people. The fact that she had a, a trauma that she never got over, this magnificent young woman. And, and another one got to Russia and the fathers used to dig um, a kolkhoz. Uh, dig food into the snow and uh, and come back and feed the child. They starved themselves. She didn't realise. I, I didn't know those stories when we were growing up. I heard them later. I made, like you say, I made light of everyone had lovely Polish neighbours who saved them or they had or they had family, or they went into Russia and a little bunch of brothers and sisters kept everybody comfortable. I made it all into a fairy tale, which I didn't catch up with entirely till I started collecting the stories. I put my back, I couldn't bear it. There was a book called The Last of the Just, and it was by Schwartz Bart, and it was... He told the story of um, of that wonderful director of orphans who went to the guest chambers holding a child in his arms. He wouldn't leave them. He was a world, 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 I'm trying to think of his name again, someone I know well. And I'm reading the book and I'm pregnant with my third child and I'm weeping the whole time. <laughs> Before I started any of this work. Did you get a chance to actually talk to your parents about it? No. Never? Not about the death of their parents. I just heard now from my cousin, George Oshlak, who's turning 94. We're going to his birthday. Uh, he's the oldest and best player. Uh, he plays squash and golf, and he's marvellous, and he survived in the forest. I just heard some things from him that I never knew. I'm still Please learning. Please ask him to do an interview with me because he actually is one of the only person that people that have said no to me, and he has such an amazing memory. I've got his story here, yes. and it's terrifying, jumping yes. from a train and surviving and seeing yes. kids killed. But who you know. and what he is today, you look in his eyes and he looks 40. He doesn't look 95. I don't think he'll talk to you. He, he yeah. runs from it. I had him come here, but it was yes. pre-war. It was his childhood yes. we talked about. Yes. Not the war. No. He's an amazing man. That the, the way he deals with life now is inspiring. Anyway, back to your story. So those days when you were growing up, um, you, and it was really interesting because as you're talking, 
you were coming here as the war was starting. Yes. My mother was going into Russia as the war was starting. And um, she, it was just interesting, her stories as well. But um, so being in Melbourne, I remember happy times at Auntie Edger and Uncle Jacobs. Mm. Every weekend there was food, there was conversation, there was... Do, how do you remember those days? Oh, I just love those people. I love that couple. But you see, I was already a young married woman. They came to my home for meals as well, occasionally. And I had to make it really good so my mother would be proud of me. Of course. <laughs> Family stuff. <laughs> and I loved them both passionately, really. But I understood something. that They had lost children during the war, two or three. Yeah. And uh, I always saw them as a tragic couple that were everything to each other. Yes. It was just a desperate holding on to each other. And they died within weeks and, of each other. Well, she couldn't survive. She died of grief. I, I, I had doctors going. I begged the doctor to come back. I saw her fading. She just couldn't. She couldn't. She died. I, I, I can't believe that this happens, but she died of grief. Grief, absolutely. They were a beautiful couple. My mother still has a couple of little plates from her home <laughs> with roses. She said she wanted to keep something. Mm. Tell me about some of those other families from Zhelikhov that you also grew up with. Well, well we didn't. There was a Zhelikhov at Lanzmannschaft uh, a little bit while later. There was um, Mottelroth. He was a Zionist and he was had a knitting mill and he was a wealthy man. Now, some of those men lost their wives. They, they came to Australia and hadn't made enough money to pay, bring their wives over. So Mottel had married a second time when he knew his wife had died and had a family, a second family, uh, Schnapps Taylor as well. Wonderful name, Schnapps Taylor in Isn't Yiddish. <laughs> that doesn't mean uh, a Schnapps. Um, Schnapps, he's not a tailor, he actually was, but Schnapps tailor means a person who who, who actually uh, gives everybody a little bit of schnapps, <laughs> you know. Uh, he married Rose and they had no children and that was... See, I saw the tragedy secondhand and right. understood them because I was... So you really connected and, to... But the Zhelikhov, I felt, I felt close but not... I didn't feel like a Zhelikhov till later when there was the Zhelikhov Landsmannschaft and uh, there were people writing from America and South America and my dad contributed. He, he's a, he was a writer. He wrote, uh, he wrote a lot. Mm. Do you remember if you felt how you felt about the, the differences between the... Zhelikhov family, Lanzmannschiff, that whole Jewish tragedy side of life and the other side of what Australia really was and um, offered. I just knew almost, I didn't know that straight away, but later on looking back, we were so well received in our state school in Princess Hill. Lee Street had more anti-Semitism. It was a poorer part of Carlton. But there were some big Jewish boys who looked after the little Jewish boys and girls and made sure as much as they could that the anti-Semites got a punch in the nose. 
Ripon, uh, Princess Hill, every single grade of mine, and I've got photos to prove it, had 40% Jews, maybe 20% Italians, a couple of Greeks, a few Maltese. There were even some kids from Syria, a Syrian father and an Australian mother. I thought they came from Sirius when I started learning about <laughs> the stars. My dad would look and tell me about the stars sometimes when he took me out to the toilet. And then there were these the Aussie kids. So. <laughs> but I went to tap ballet and toe with mostly Aussies and we were accepted. There was some anti-Semitism, but very little where, where I lived. I was you very sort of protected. Knew, you sort of knew that you were expected to hang with the Jewish kids or did you also? No, I had a girl called Shirley Light. Her mother, the dad had gone away to war and hadn't come back and mother had various uncles come and my mother knew that, but we were good friends. I had another friend when I was a little older called Gloria and she had blonde hair and blue eyes and I did feel that I had a non-Jewish, a very typically non-Jewish friend and she was sweet and they're much less demanding than the Jewish girls. <laughs> Easy to get on with. You didn't have the little the little tussles about this and that. We were a, we were a lively lot, you know. <laughs> Julie, um, I'd also just like to talk to you uh, for a little bit also because today divorce is um, more common than not. But in your day back then, divorce was not, it was not just frowned upon, but, you know, you don't do it. And yet you did. And you um, you had two marriages. Could you talk a little bit about transitioning and family and everything? Well, this goes right away from this uh, other part of my life. I didn't want the breakup. Um, we'd been married 28 years, four kids, but uh, the husband had a, a severe midlife crisis, I suppose, and wanted not another marriage, but to, to live the years he'd never had. His parents had died. His mother died when he was little and dad died and he took on too much responsibility and he wanted to go out and be a, a single man. And... Uh, I suffered for four years and then realised that um, I'd been holding Daddy's hand and uh, allowing him to direct my life and it was like letting go of a hand I didn't need and I still uh, honour, I honour the families that stay together happily or work out their problems as they go. I think it's the best for everyone and it's best for the kids. But certainly I think I was given a second chance to marry someone less critical and, and more um, a man with enormous integrity and, and we had some very, very good years together. And I must say at this stage I'm going to brag a little but I have a boyfriend the last four years, someone someone I've known all my life. We, he was in Habunim with me and uh, I've learned something. It's a very late lesson that there isn't one person for everybody. As long as there are kids, I really believe it would be a good idea for both adults to behave and bring up the kids uh, and, um, and put aside the but nonsense. Looking, but looking back on it, Julie, even 
and it's not even with kids, but especially with kids, they pick up on things that you don't want them to. Isn't it better looking back? Or is it better? I shouldn't say isn't it because I'm putting a value on mm. it. But is, is it better to really be happy and follow your heart or to go along with tradition just because it's tradition? What do you... Oh, look, I think if there's absolutely nothing there for either person, I think, uh, yeah, suddenly you look at each other, there's nothing there. There's nothing there you want. One might feel like that or the other. And then, of course, uh, you, you can't tie people together who don't like each other or have nothing for each other. But I think... I really think maybe people should do a little bit of thinking or some sort of proper marriage counselling to to put themselves in, in the shoes of children who come into the world. It's, it's your responsibility to see that they have the best. If the best is divorce, okay. I'm not against divorce. I'm against childish behaviour of adults and I think sometimes that's what happens. And did you talk to your kids about it afterwards? Look, they were, they were, the three oldest were 18 and 20 and 21. The little one suffered a lot, the 11-year-old. I did nothing. I didn't date or go out with anyone or I just pulled the family close together and, and we lived out our lives, we were well supported by the husband. We were not left high and dry and we we got even closer as a result. I was about to say... And I certainly didn't cut him out of my life because when the kids had a birthday, I didn't want them to have two birthdays. Mm. I think I did at the adult as much as I was able. I was pretty... Can I use bad language? Of course pissed off, <laughs> very pissed off. I was a very good wife and he told everyone I was. He said it wasn't Julie's fault. I just had to go out and find myself. And, well, he found himself all right. And I, and I discovered, yes, I know. I am grateful. I still think there is a responsibility when you bring kids into the world. You should put them first. And if it's going to be awful for them, anyhow, have a divorce, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but it is, look... You, as they say on aeroplanes, you have to put the um, oxygen mask on yourself first before the kids, and um, and it's important <laughs> to do that. So but you can you can you can protect yourself. You can yeah. pre you don't have to be happy all the time, Lily. You've got to be something else. Well, you need You've to be pragmatic. Pragmatic? No, not that. You've got to live according to your. Your vision of there has to be an inner integrity, and I'm not saying you've got to always be the on, most honest, most truthful, whatever. You know when you're you're stepping lightly, and you're a good friend, and that you're a reasonable person. I think that's know, happiness too. That's happiness too. Absolutely, mm. and you change. Every person changes as they go through life. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit different because maybe it's because of the experiences they have or have not mm -hmm. had. And it doesn't make things wrong or bad. It just gives you the experience that you have. And I don't believe in martyring yourself 
for a greater good that much anymore. I just, I be, especially when it comes to relationships and marriage and children, because your children, the most important thing is what you show them at home and what they see in the home. And I'm sure as they were growing up, they saw a lot of love yes. and a lot of kindness and a lot of that. And they know it when that goes. And so it's incumbent upon parents to lead their best lives as an example for their kids. All right, I won't talk about my personal... Um, but this the, is about the, you, so... Yeah, no, well, there were 10 years where it, it was getting less well, but then my ex-husband went to Queensland to... to, to, to Find uh, himself. Uh, no, no, a big business arrangement there, but... Uh, but um, so he wasn't even around that much, really. Oh. So, so because mm. ju only because we're running out of time, and I could do a mm. whole another hour with you, mm. and I look forward to off off air as well. Mm. But looking, summarizing your life, eighty five and a half at the moment, mm. with everything that you've done, with everything that you've gone through, with all the experiences that you've looked at in the position that you are where you were reading other people's stories as well what do you feel at this stage in life is is really important generally for you and also for younger people I think I've been lucky because I've really, in spite of, you know, two marriages and all the rest, I've always done what I love. And when I stayed home for 15 years with four children, I was, when I shut the door of my house, I felt that everything I love and need is right here behind this door. So I was there and I enjoyed that. Then I was studying and I studied not as a young girl. I, d I did a primary teacher certificate, but then I did an arts degree with English and the grammar and uh, um, uh, the things I loved and, and uh, um, I did um, <laughs> philosophy art history and it was like a gift so I loved and I loved studying then and I was getting top top marks which I wasn't getting when I was a student I got through but it it was a, a bit of a hassle to do exams and here I was just loving it and when I got my degree and I started teaching of all things in adult migrants because I had an English degree and I, my language studies were important I found myself in the perfect place as well. so I've considered myself in every way a very very fortunate person and I've had some lovely partners as well there's no doubt about it okay? and you still have now which makes life so much richer he'll, when you can share it with someone I look forward to meeting him. Julie, thank you so much. I've really appreciated and enjoyed this time with you and um, look forward to many more conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Lily. And keep up your beautiful, optimistic view of life and your enjoyment of life. <laughs>